Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. This weekend, we join our brothers and sisters around the world in remembering the death and the burial and in celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the pivotal event in the Christian story. No other compares to it. In fact, about the resurrection that Paul will later write to his friends in Corinth, that were it not for the resurrection, we would of all people be the most hopeless. Our faith would be useless. But there it stands, the resurrection, and that's what we celebrate this weekend. I am reminded of that time and again. I've noticed it in the last few months during this COVID time, when I've had one funeral service after another. As the family huddles together, trying to shelter themselves against the chill wind of death. They hide behind that rock called Jesus Christ, and they shelter themselves under that affirmation, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But news of such importance has to have witnesses, people who bring us the news. We have to make sure of our sources, don't we? I was reminded of that years ago right here at Loma Linda University Church on a Sabbath morning as we were preparing for the worship service. As we were getting ready, a, a member came in and grabbed one of our pastors by the sleeve and said, something tragic has happened. We need you to announce it to the congregation so that the congregation will know. What's that? The person went on to say that a person in our community had died suddenly. In fact, it was a person who was well-known for living a very healthy lifestyle. Died? Of what? A heart attack. Oh, my goodness. As it was being sorted through, suddenly one of the groups said, well, if so-and-so died of a heart attack, they must have risen again because they are coming in, in the back of the room. It was a clear reminder. Make sure you know your sources before you go telling the tale. And for that reason, we come today to the opening witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not an attorney or the son of one, although I am the brother-in-law of one. But that being the case, I still would say, if I happened to be an attorney and I was involved in a big case, I would want to make certain, absolutely certain, that my opening witness was firm, credible, prepared. Just to make sure that my instincts were right, I went online this week and, and read a piece written by a practicing attorney entitled, Questioning Your First Witness. And my senses were, were borne out in the piece. The attorney said, make sure they're prepared, make sure they're calm, make sure they have their facts straight, make sure they're credible. And also, 
If they have any weaknesses, you may want to share those earlier so that the other attorney doesn't get hold of them and damage your opening witness. It all made sense to me. So when it comes to an event, to news as profound, as life-altering as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's probably a pretty good idea to know about the opening witness. The opening witness named Mary Magdalene. So when we left Jesus last week, last Sabbath, we left him with the words of the Gospel of Mark, very sparse, very spare, very simple words. When they came to Golgotha, they crucified him there. And then last night at our Good Friday service, we watched as two wealthy witnesses placed Jesus' broken and bloodied body in a new tomb. Well, this morning, we come back to that tomb early in the morning. It's the first day of the week. We come to look through the lens of Matthew's gospel at what happens there. Now, the eminent New Testament British theologian N.T. Wright says Matthew's gospel is the most dramatic in telling of this event. In Matthew's gospel, an angel descends, an earthquake rattles the place, the angel sits on the stone, the, the guards fall and become like dead people. It's a very dramatic scene. But like the other gospels, Matthew tells us about the witnesses, those who came first to the tomb. Matthew's gospel will tell us about our opening witness. And so I go to Matthew chapter 28 to read the first 10 verses. Here's what Matthew writes. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they, be shook, that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee there they will see me. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tells us that the women were the first witnesses. They were the ones who came to the tomb. In every gospel account, Mary Magdalene is the first name on the list. In fact, in one gospel, in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene is the only name listed. So Mary Magdalene is our opening witness. And that's a problem. 
That is truly a problem. It pains me to say it and it hurts us to admit it, but in that world, in the first century world, in the ancient world, the witness of a woman was viewed as not credible. By and large, it was unacceptable. Couldn't be believed. And so when the account tells us that the first ones to come were the women, if we view it for, from the lens of that day and time, there's a question. Is it valid? Is it credible? Now, ironically, the fact that that is what is written actually helps us, as we read the gospel accounts today, believe the gospel accounts. Listen to the words of the New Testament scholar Michael J. Wilkins as he unpacks why that is the case. Here's what Wilkins writes. The cowardly picture painted of the men hiding away in Jerusalem while the women boldly carry out their responsibilities to prepare Jesus' body for burial would certainly offend the sensibilities of Jewish readers and doubtless would not have been recorded unless it were true. What Wilkins is saying is, if somebody's making up this story, if Matthew is sitting down and, and just constructing it falsely out of whole cloth. He would never have written that the women were the first witnesses because the people in his world would have said, you can't believe them. So in the world of that day, these are implausible witnesses. Mary Magdalene, opening witness? Are you sure? It's a bit problematic. But it's not just the fact that the women were the first witnesses. It's the fact that Mary was the first, the opening witness. Because Mary has a history. I've learned enough, not as an attorney, please, to say that if your witness has problems in, his, in her background, that could be problems for your case. Now, besides these moments at the empty tomb, two gospel writers tell us something more about Mary. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus and Mary had met earlier and that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary. What do you suppose an opposing attorney would do with that? So tell us about your background. Seven demons? Seriously? Gone? Well, how do you know that you're whole now? How can we believe you now? That's a big blotch, a big stain on your past. Are you credible? And yet, she's the opening witness. You would think, wouldn't you, that if God wanted to build a very credible case... Someone else would have been chosen. Someone else would have been prompted by the Spirit early that morning to go to the tomb. Especially in view of the fact that this is the pivotal event in Christian history. Everything builds on this moment. If this event is not truthful, if it is not fact, then everything else comes into question. The claims Jesus made, the life that he lived, 
the funerals that you and I attend. Yet Mary Magdalene is there as the opening witness. So what are we to make of that? What are we to make of this implausible witness? Well, I suppose the first thing we would have to say would be this, would be the fact that Jesus made a habit in his ministry of tapping implausible people on the shoulder and drawing them into his ministry, message, and mission. Those who had been turned away, he welcomed. Those who had been abandoned, he embraced. Those who had been told to shut their mouths, he gave his word. He had done this all along. In fact, building on that point, the New Testament scholar Craig Keener writes this, that women are chosen as the first witnesses is highly significant. Both Jewish and Roman law severely minimize the value of their witness. It fits Jesus' countercultural and counter-status ministry and certainly runs counter to what outsiders would have valued or anything the later church would have chosen to invent as it did not appeal to their culture. So Keener says, not only was this not a problem for Jesus, not only was it not a problem for God, it went right in line with Jesus' ministry, with Jesus' mission. This is the very kind of person he chose, implausible people. People that the rest of the world would have said no to, he said yes. When they would have said leave, he would have said come. When they would have said you don't belong, he would have said you're at the center of my kingdom and plan. It's exactly the kind of people he chose. But I want you to notice something further. Not only was Mary Magdalene an implausible witness, but through the angel there at the tomb, God gave her clarity on what her mission would be. God gave, gave all the women clarity on what their mission would be. God gives them, through the words of the angel, the central mission, exactly what they are to do, and it could not be more clear. The late, the late James Montgomery Boyce helps us with that by pointing out four words at the center, at the heart of the passage, that describe our mission to us, even if we too are implausible witnesses. So back to Matthew 28. I want to reread verses 5 to 7, and I want you to pay attention to four words, four simple words. Come, see, Go, tell. Boyce pointed me to these words. So here we go, verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Come, see, go, tell. That's the Christian mission. 
That's what matters much more than the plausibility or implausibility of any individual witness. That's the message to you, to me. If you've ever doubted or been afraid, ever wondered, do I have anything to share, anything to tell? Can I make a difference in the world for Jesus? There's your mandate. Come, see, go, tell. So let's break those down for a few moments. Come, says the angel first. Come. Now that's precisely what the women had done. That's precisely what Mary Magdalene had done. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that the women prepared spices to go to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They weren't able to do that on the Friday. The Sabbath had arrived, so they went home, and one gospel writer says they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. But, but now here, first thing, first day of the week, they're back with the spices to anoint his body for burial. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew says something a bit nuanced. He says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Went to look at the tomb. That's all he says. We wonder, were they following the, the, the practice, the custom common in the ancient world where family would go back to the tomb for three days to make sure the person had actually died? Is that why they went, according to Matthew? That's doubtful, because these same women had seen the events of Calvary. They had seen him on the cross. They had seen the Roman spear thrust into his side. They had seen his broken and bloodied body taken down. They had watched it being laid in the tomb. It's doubtful that they had any questions about the fact that he indeed had died. What's more likely, is what you might have done after the funeral of your beloved, after everybody had gone home, you got in the car, you drove to the cemetery to, in the words of Matthew, look at the tomb, to grieve, to remember, to weep. And that is when they are stunned beyond words. The tomb is empty. The angel meets them. Come, invites them into the tomb, into the, the very place where his body had been. And that brings us to the second word. Come, see. See. What are they to see? Matthew doesn't record that for us, but John does. Over in John's gospel, not with the women, but with Peter and John. Mary went back and told them, and John tells us that Peter and John ran, raced to the tomb. Peter started first, but John beat him there, probably younger. When John gets there, he looks into the tomb. When Peter gets there, his brusque manner, true to himself, he goes into the tomb and it says he sees the grave clothes lying there. John then enters the tomb and looks and sees that they are still in their folds. Remember that? 
William Barclay says the language as it's written in the original describes the fact that the grave clothes have not been disturbed, but that the body of Jesus has, has, has vanished out of them. And the text in John says, John saw and believed. The women, too, apparently saw and believed. The angel said, come, see, go. Now, forgive me, angel, but I want to say to you, I'm not sure you had to tell them that. Because after what they have just seen, they're going to go. You know that, don't you? You who have received your, your acceptance letter to a prestigious law school. You who, who, who have ripped open the envelope on match day as a senior medical student and realized you matched to your number one program. You who've gotten the news as a faculty member, as a researcher, that the grant has been given, has been awarded several million dollars. You who have hoped to have a book published have received that email that says, it has been accepted, we will publish it. Nobody has to tell you to go, do they? You're just looking for the person to tell. Your, your heart pounds with excitement. You are ready to go. So forgive me, angelic visitor. I can appreciate that you said it, but I doubt you had to tell them. Come, see, go, tell. I wonder about that one too. Maybe, maybe you're saying those last two, go and tell, not so much for the implausible witnesses there that morning, but for implausible witnesses like me, who are very reluctant to go and tell. It's a natural response to go and tell. As I mentioned, the late James Montgomery Boyce, he tells in his expositional commentary about his three kids doing an Easter egg hunt. And he said, I watched it and it happened over and over again. They're out hunting for Easter eggs and, and the youngest one says, I found an Easter egg. And then the oldest one says, yes, Jennifer found an Easter egg. And then the middle one says, it's true, Jennifer found an Easter egg. He says, they all have to tell me. And they repeat it, and they repeat it. It's natural to tell. I don't think the angel necessarily had to tell that to Mary Magdalene, our opening witness, or to the other women. But these words were to endure far beyond them. It is the pivotal message of the Christian faith, given to the most implausible of witnesses. And yet, the simplicity and the clarity of the message empowers any witness, no matter how implausible, to engage in the Christian mission. Come, see, go, tell. 
but I do still have some questions. Questions about the opening witness. I would almost want to say, God, with all due respect, is that really the person to whom you want to entrust this incredible news? Someone who in her world would be easy to write off? Someone who in any world is quite implausible? What am I to make of that? What are you to make of it? Well, I think we can at least say this as our central thought today. Here it is. God entrusts the most incredible news to the most implausible witnesses. God entrusts the most incredible news to the most implausible witnesses. Not only at the empty tomb, but today. I mean, look at us. Look at you. Look at me. Broken, battered people. Human beyond words. Feeble, faltering, failing. Surely you ought to send angelic visitors to share the news, God, right? But our opening witness tells us that God entrusts the most incredible news to the most implausible witnesses. I think John Lennox was probably an implausible witness. Lennox, who's Professor Emeritus, Oxford University, Mathematics, I mean, what's a mathematics professor going to say about the Christian story? About the empty tomb? You need a theologian, don't you? Maybe a Cambridge-Oxford-educated scholar in New Testament. But no, Lennox, Professor Emeritus of Mathematics. But it's John Lennox who tells the story of touring in Eastern Europe with a group as part of that tour in Eastern Europe, they were able to see some of those sad sights of the Holocaust. Lennox tells of coming one of those days to one of those horrific displays. It was a mock-up of the gate to Auschwitz that had that deceptive sign, a mockery that said, Work makes free. Along on the trip was a Jewish woman from South Africa. Lennox learned that she was there trying to process the stories of many of her extended family members who had died in those killing camps, trying to put it all together. On this particular day, they had come to a display of, of horrible photographs, the medical experiments of that vicious fiend of Auschwitz, Dr. Joseph Mengele. They could hardly look at them. But it was while they were there at that display that this South African Jewish woman said to Lennox, So, what does your religion make of this? Wow. That's a question.
I would actually like to read to you what Lennox writes about that event. Here are his words. What was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mengele photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my children facing such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror her family had endured. But still, she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer. I eventually said, well, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children and cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil Mengele did. I have no easy answers, but I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. What is it, she said. I said, you know that I'm a Christian. That means I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as Savior, which is what his name Yeshua means. Now I know that this is even more difficult for you to, more than difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua really was God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope. And it is a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead. And one day, as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. There was silence. She was still standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. After a moment, with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? He's a mathematician. 2,000 years removed from that tomb. An implausible witness, if there ever was one. And yet somewhere in his life, 
He had heard those words. Come, see, go, tell. And that's what he did. And that's what our opening witness, Mary Magdalene, did. And that's what God invites you to do. Me to do. Because God entrusts incredible news to implausible witnesses like you and me. Yet when those implausible witnesses come and see and go and tell, they change the world. So what about it? Mary Magdalene did it. If she did it, what about you?